If we don't use the right measuring system in the high-stakes game we call life, the disasters are way more serious with long-term consequences than any of those. This month, we're doing a bit of a survey, uh, a high-level survey overview reminder of the story of reality, as the Bible claims to be. Sometimes, sometimes we have to just get a bit higher, see the overview again, to keep on asking ourselves the question, am I measuring what I see and what I feel? Am I evaluating what I don't see and what I don't feel according to the real story? Am I putting the puzzle pieces together in a way that, that really will make it complete as God promises? All the right pieces and no wrong pieces. No pieces from other puzzles. Every measuring system in this thing called life touches on and gets evaluated by how it fits with the puzzle piece we're going to be talking about today. Which is actually the section most of us begin with. Because it is the reality that's closest to us, my reality, in which the real question is, who am I in this puzzle and how do I fit, right? Or in a much bigger sense than the way we usually ask it, what about me? What about me? Okay, what about you? What about me? Last week I mentioned that the way the Christian story of the Bible portrays this piece of the puzzle that we're talking about today is a huge reason why I've come to believe that this really is the story of reality. Let me tell you how I got there. Although I had uh, uh, received an athletic scholarship to a university that at the time was proud to be considered the most liberal institute of higher education in Canada, I chose to go to Bible college primarily because I realized that I was at a fork in the road of my life in a number of ways, most significantly about whether I would choose to build my life on God, with God, with God as the center, or whether I was going to follow my own whims, my own urges, my own dreams. I, I, there's, there was a part of me that really followed, wanted to follow God, but, oh man, oh man, there were all kinds of buts. This was during the years when Bible schools were becoming Bible colleges and seeking to demonstrate academic rigor along with spiritual vitality. We were assured that the teaching we were getting had academic credibility and we were warned that the expectation of our own work was that it too would be evaluated according to high academic standards. Took me two years to figure that one out. It was in this environment that I fell in love with the story. And contrary to the trajectory I thought my life was going, I found myself being what? Pulled? <laughs> dragged? Drawn? Pushed? Yeah, all of the above. Somehow feeling compelled into becoming what Ephesians 4 called pastor-teacher. After several years of, of being... Uh, do everything assistant in a church. They called me an associate because I think they wanted me to feel better about it. I decided that it was time for me to go to graduate school. I was a little hesitant to put it on the table with my new wife, but when I did, to my surprise, she was not only excited, she seemed relieved, although she, she denies being serious if she ever said it. At one time, she did say, yes. Because if I'm going to be married to a pastor, I'd better be an educated pastor. 
said that. The school I wanted to attend required not just an undergraduate degree from a Bible college. They wanted students with a broad framework of understanding, a degree in sciences or liberal arts, preferably not from a Christian perspective. And so when I submitted my transcript, I got a conditional acceptance, and the condition being that I take two or three more liberal arts courses. And since I knew I would not be able to make the money I needed as well as take the courses required to get to school that fall, I decided to take a whole year plus and actually pursue another undergraduate degree. Two fully loaded semesters plus three courses. For what? To get more letters behind my name? Not at all. You see, although I had been told that the work I did in Bible college was academically rigorous, I had nothing to compare it to. I needed to prove it to myself. And although I was convinced that the worldview I had adopted in my studies was the best picture of reality, I really felt I needed to test it from the other side. And so I found myself taking a degree in psychology from a university that at that time had one of the more reputable psychology programs in the country. I crammed the year and a bit with psychology, sociology, and history courses. And, and the further I went along, the more confident I became. Not only did the foundation I received have academic rigor, everything I was being presented from the other side of the fence as to the nature of the human condition just did not hold a candle to the puzzle box cover that I had in this book. You see, it was at a secular university that my trust in the Bible's picture of that puzzle section called Who Am I Really was solidified. It answers the what about me questions in ways that make the most sense of the way I experience myself and in ways that are the most useful to me more than any other framework in guiding me as I try to put the puzzle of my life together or sometimes just keep it from disintegrating into any more chaos. Last week, we saw where this story, the real story, we begins. The first piece of the puzzle, in the beginning, God. Unless that puzzle piece is the one we start with, the rest of the puzzle just won't come together. And the next piece of the puzzle, literally, the next piece in this story of reality, as we find it in the Bible, is the, places, is the place we want to begin, with me. Where do I fit? And it's the way that this story answers that question that is most satisfying and to me the most realistic portrayal of reality. No, I am not the center. Which is actually quite freeing when you think about it. It takes a lot of pressure off. But I do have the significance that I really long for. And this story also helps me answer the second question in the only way that truly makes sense. If I'm significant, why do I not feel like and how can I get to the point of knowing it and living it? Or to put another question, another way, the core question I have about myself as I look in the mirror, when I allow myself to think about myself as honestly and as accurately as I can is, am I beauty or am I the beast? Really? And the answer is, well, let's turn. 
Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We're going to survey those three chapters today, take an overview. Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Turn, very beginning of your Bible. In the beginning, God, God who does what? He creates, and in creating, He does what? He makes order out of chaos, fullness out of emptiness, and light out of darkness. And it all moves toward the climax of God putting a man and a woman together, naked, totally transparent with each other in a garden. After each stage of creation, what does God say? God says, it says that God saw that it was good, good, but not yet complete. It is complete as a backdrop, but it is not complete because into this creation, God placed His own image, His doppelganger. One who was like him. So God created mankind as his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And after the man and woman are together in the garden, we read, and God saw all that he had made. He surveyed the entire scene, and it is now very good. Now it has the fullness that he intended it to have. Why? Do you know what it means to be the image of God? People have suggested many things, but it seems to me the best way to understand that question is to think again about what the original readers are experiencing and hearing when Moses talks to them. And now later, as he writes out their story that he wants them to remember, where are they? They have just escaped from slavery in Egypt under a powerful and oppressive king. And they are now in no man's land, on their way to a a promised land that they're starting to think is just a fantasy land. And who knows how many other powerful kings this beat up, broken down, worn out, upright, uptight people will encounter. In their minds, it was such a stupid dream that they could ever think they would leave slavery. They're beginning to think that they had been better off as slaves in Egypt. Just think about that for a moment. Better off as slaves? In other words, being a slave is a step up from where they find themselves. Can you see how beaten down their self-esteem as a people is? In Egypt, they had said, we have more dignity than this. We know it in our heart. Let's get out of here. Let's prove it, claim it, and go for it. But now it's like dignity? We call this dignity? Let's just face it. We have no dignity. We're lower than slaves. We are just dirt. Does that resonate? We know, or at least we've come to believe, that we're mistreated, not valued where we are, and so we... So we leave a marriage, a job, a family, and at some point, if we're honest with ourselves, begin to wonder, would I not have been better off back there? Many times, we would have been. But there's more going on in this story. Now remember, who who was it they'd been afraid of? Who was it they had resented? And yet now wondered if they shouldn't just go back and give in to. It was Pharaoh, the powerful king, their pimp, 
And into that context, Moses tells them their story of a God, the creator God who spoke it all together with his powerful word and then created humanity. Not just with the word, but he, he formed them with his own hands, carefully to be his image. That's you. So what did they hear when they heard the word image? They heard that word in light of, well, well, in light of the kings that they were afraid of, the king of Egypt, and who knows the kind of powerful kings they would yet encounter their journey. What's so significant about images? Kings had images. In those days, when kings started to create kingdoms beyond their own city, they would, they would defeat another city and, and they would declare themselves ruler over it, but, but they couldn't stay there because they had to leave and go back home to ensure that their home city was still under their iron hands, right? And so they would scare these new subjects into subjection. And one way they did that was to create statues of themselves that they would place in those conquered cities, and they called these statues images. Those images were considered to be the proxy presence of the king. And those statues had four characteristics. Number one, they were created to resemble, look like the king. And especially the characteristics that, they, that this king wanted them to think about him. They, they, he would exaggerate those. A fierce look. You know it. And sometimes they were not look-alike statues. They were they they were things that the king wanted the people to, to that the king wanted to symbolize about themselves. Maybe maybe a lion. Number two, these statues were actually larger than life. They, they were much bigger than the king. They could be seen from miles around. They wanted to people people everywhere to know and feel the presence of the king. And in some context, there was, there, there was another piece to it. They convinced the people that these statues had magical powers, that they had this mystical connection to the king. Through them, the, the, the king could see what was happening, would be able to show up at any time there was trouble, just like parents. It's like, how did they know, right? What is it that Moses wants them to hear? You, you, are the proxy presence of the king, the one who spoke it all into existence, whose power will bring everything he wants to pass. You don't have the image of God in you. You are. You are the image of God in the world. To be the image of God, I, I've come to understand that it means at least four things about me and you as we were created by God to be. Number one, we were created to be the representatives of God in this world, to, 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 to resemble God. We are not gods, but we were created to be like the real God. We were created to be the, the, the closest thing to being God-like in all of creation. Let's get our eyes off ourselves, our situation, our struggles, our issues. Says Moses, let's look at our story who we were created to be, who in a new way God called us to be when he called us out of Egypt, and who in our hearts we know we really are. 
That's why we left Egypt. God called us here to bring us to a place that we really know in our hearts. We are His image. But it wasn't just a a, a passive resemblance of God. We were created to actually reflect God in creation, to be His representation in creation. There's, There's this likeness factor between God and humans that all of the universe needs to see, and that means it is not about me. It's about how well I am fulfilling the purpose for which God created me to be, to be His likeness like nothing else in all of creation and reflect that in the world. Moses is saying that's how we need to see what happened when God called us out of Egypt. It never really was about us. We get the opportunity to represent, to point to the God who is above all gods, the king who is above all kings. It really wasn't about us then, and it's not about us now, even when things aren't going so smoothly. Our job now is to figure out how best we can continue to reflect and represent the God who created us. Another thing it means to be God's image is that we were created, as it says in Genesis 1, when it says we're created as God's image, we are created to rule for God over the rest of the creation. Fill the earth and and, and subdue it. Rule over it. Now get this, not for ourselves, which is the way we screw it up when we try and subdue creation, but for God. Everything you are, everything you have, everything you have the opportunity to influence, you have the opportunity to be a representative on behalf of God to do what God does with His authority and power, which is what? To create order out of chaos, light out of darkness, fullness and richness out of emptiness. You have a way that you can do that in whichever environment you are. So what would happen? If that was the simple job description we went out the door with this morning, every one of us, we took that into our workplace, we we took that into home, just ask the question, how can I cooperate today with God by influencing my environment in a way that, that helps bring some order, some meaning? Am I doing that or am I just causing more chaos and confusion and dragging it down? Am I bringing light even, even just in little ways or I'm just, am I just making this a darker place? Am I bringing fullness or am I just sucking the air out of the room being a wet blanket? What if whether we, we think of ourselves as a, a leader or not, what if we played the role when other, when other people talked and did things of looking at it and figuring out and regardless of what we feel about that person, regardless of how that person comes across, what if, what if rather than reacting to the person we asked ourselves the question, hmm, in what way can, can I leverage what they said to just bring some light and, and perhaps make a suggestion about order and structure and, and That's what we were created to be and do. But it gets even better as the story is retold in chapter 2 about this image God created. Chapter 2, verse 7, Then the Lord said, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust. You think you were dirt? Well, you, you came from dirt. But God formed you. 
into his image. And he did something special. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. There's something about that breath of life. We're not exactly sure what it is, but it does also, that word breath is the same word as the word spirit. There seems to be implications here that we have some new information about humans as God's image. Not only were we created to rule and represent and reflect, we were created with a special capacity, a capacity that could only fully that could not fully be explained by the word image because any thinking person it was knew that it was only a myth that those images of kings could communicate with king. Humans, though, although we're very much a part of creation, we were formed from dust, we are also above all creation, unique and separate from the created order. We were actually created distinctly with a capacity and a necessity to, to relate personally to God to do relationship with God. And that's why it says in chapter 3, verse 8, when God came around into the garden, he's doing what he always did, and he was wanting to walk together with them. So why is it I'm not living it and feeling it? Why is it then that my life sucks? That's the question of these people. And that's where Moses takes them next as he tells them their story. As I was thinking about how to help us see this next part of the story in Genesis 3, I was thinking about an experience I had about, I don't know, 10 or 11 years ago now. LaDonna and I were in one of the world's major cities on the other side of the globe. We had the wonderful privilege of being part of, of a delegation that was invited to spend 10 days in this country um, from North America. Uh, the occasion for this trip was an invitation by, by some dignitaries from the higher levels of government in this country. And, and so, befitting the occasion, while we were in the city, we were put up in a, in a five-star hotel. Nicest hotel I've ever stayed in. I mean, LaDonna and I had a, had a suite to ourselves. Huge suite. Well-appointed with fine furniture and marble countertops. And the icing on the cake was, was, was a, a very intricate China tea service on the marble countertop. In our hotel room. I mean, this was grand, and we were the lowest on the totem pole in this group. First night we were there, LaDonna's brother, who was the one who had, had included us and who was experienced in global travel, said, you know, the, the best way to deal with jet lag is to go to the gym just before you go to bed and have a hard workout. So he took me down to the gym, and we had a workout, and, and, uh, and so late at night he brought me back to my room and, and, uh, and said, you know what, I'll be here at the door at 7 o'clock in the morning to pick you up. Next morning, he showed up at our door to escort us to breakfast, and, and when I answered the door, I'm standing there with my hand elevated, a towel tightly taped around it as a pressure bandage, and he said, what? I just left you here a few hours ago. All you had to do was lay down and sleep. What happened? Well, in the middle of the night, I had to do what middle-aged men have to do in the middle of the night when they wake up, and I tried to do it without fully waking up and without waking LaDonna up. You guys, you know the drill. And so because I had a mental map of the room in my head, I decided I did not need to turn on any lights, and I could keep my eyes half shut. Well, as it turned out, my mental map was accurate. I mean, I, I, that room was so grand, just grand and gorgeous and beautiful, I had taken it in. I knew it. But what I didn't factor 
into my map was that the very clear and wide and open lane to my destination was precisely where we had chosen to put the suitcase. And so because I had not turned on the lights, I tripped on that suitcase. And because I was not fully alert and awake, my normally good reflexes could not take over as quickly as they usually do when I stumble, which does happen occasionally. My hand instinctively went out to break the fall. And with about 200 pounds of thrust behind it, smashed that beautiful china tea service on the marble top, destroying most of the pieces. <laughs> and by the time LaDonna woke up and turned on the lights and came to the bathroom where I had found myself, there was blood all over the room. I had a cut on my hand that was significant enough that had we been home, it would have required several stitchers. But what do you do in the middle of the night in a foreign city? Well-prepared nurse that she was, and knowing the klutz with whom she'd be traveling, LaDonna pulled out a package of Steri-Strips, pulled the skin together, put three of them across there, bound it up tightly with a towel and a bandage, taped it up to hold it tight, and she said, now can we try and get a few hours of sleep? <laughs> if you've read the next chapter in the story, Genesis 3, what we discover is the baggage that we, not God, brought into the beautiful, pristine scene, and it becomes the place at which we always fall, especially when we deny, when we ignore, or we forget that it's there. Look in your Bibles as I'm talking about Genesis 3. We're not going to read the whole thing. Here, here they were, enjoying God, living in the perfect setting. There was only one condition God had placed on them. It was not an arbitrary condition, it was actually a necessary condition for them to fully enjoy the life and God as they were intended to, to live in keeping with their design and their purpose, to demonstrate that they were indeed the image, the reflection of God, and that they were not God, to show that they were satisfied, complete in Him by being underneath and accountable to Him and yet relating to him as friends. The one who gave them all things to enjoy. There was one thing that was out of bounds. One fruit they're not allowed to eat. There was nothing special about that fruit. That fruit had no magical properties. Nothing different about that fruit than all of the other hundreds of varieties of fruit that they enjoyed. It was simply one little requirement to demonstrate that they were close with God, ruling, reflecting, and representing, and relating rightly to and under God. That, that's all. That's all it represented. But along comes another created being that is jealous of their status of being next to God, a being that was bitter that he was not God, who had discovered he could not take over from God, the evil one, who took the form of a serpent and came to this dear image of God. And listen to how he twists their thinking. God had said they would not die, and he, he sort of asked the question, did, did he really say that? And then he says, you certainly will not die. Certainly, 
Who was he to know for certain? And how did he know that? Why would they believe him? It was because what he said next that planted the seed of doubt. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He was wrong. And he was also right, sort of. You will be like God. What? They already were like God. As close to being like God as a created being could be. A created being never could be God. That was, that was the evil one's issue. And he tries to make it their issue. And it's the second part that gets them. The part in which he was actually right in a whole different way than he said it. You will know good and evil. They already knew good. Why would they want to know evil? Because it was something they didn't know. By framing it as something they didn't know, it led them to sin. They sinned, as we said a couple of weeks ago, before they actually disobeyed. They became discontent. And in the fall, they came to know evil. Which, by definition, keeps them from fully living in and knowing the good for which they were created. You see, in order to try to have more than we were created for, we actually become less than we were created for. This is the Peter Principle in its original and most devastating form. And in this fall, four things happen. Number one, our, our relatedness to God was cut off, severed. Number two, our, our relatedness to each other, beginning with the core relationship of marriage, becomes, becomes clouded, doesn't deliver. But it's not just in marriage. It's, it's true of other relationships as we read in, in, in Jesus' teaching and Paul's teachings. You see, we tend to approach relationships too naively because we so desperately need them or too suspiciously, right? We know what people are thinking and it's always negative, right? It's always negative about us. Even in, in church, we see someone with a look on their face and, and if they happen to sort of cross their eyes as we're going by, we know they are thinking about us negatively, right? We see, this, we see this wonderful woman who takes her job seriously, and all of a sudden she realizes, oh my goodness, I forgot something, and what do we think? Oh, here's what she's thinking. How could someone be that messed up, right? We're afraid of that. We see, we see someone who, uh, you know, has uh, trouble getting up, waking up in the morning. It takes a while for him to wake up, and, 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 and we think he's looking at us and saying, hmm, they'll sure never fit in. Because we know it's his job to make us fit in, right? We, we see someone who is so diligent and so wonderful and, and, and so warm and engaging with people and we see the look on her face and we think what she's thinking, are you kidding me? Somebody that screwed up? I'm shocked, right? That's what we think. 
We see somebody who likes to have fun. And what do we think he's thinking? You're such a big joke. Right? We do that. Why, why are we so suspicious when we don't even know people? Could it be because we think they might be seeing the dark side we're trying to hide? Could it be that we're on guard, ready to put up a good defense because we think that they are thinking as negatively about us as we think about people? Right? It's the image that's been broken. Oh, yeah. Lisa's got all these good looks, right? <laughs> it was so easy to... <laughs> oh, poor girl, she'll never make it. And then our relationship with creation becomes complicated. Verse 17, you're going to have to work harder. And our relationship, finally, to ourself. The self that we were created to be becomes confused. Two stories about me. Image of God fallen. Doesn't that describe the huge question we wrestle with when we think about ourselves? Doesn't that tell us why we live in that tension? Am I beauty or am I the beast? Am I beautiful or am I broken? Do I have some inherent dignity or am I just dirt? Isn't that our dilemma? That's who we are. That's who we all are. And we all wrestle with this dilemma in so many different ways. We try to, sometimes, some of us try to prove we're not broken. We're not the beast. And so we try to cover up and hide the dark side. We try to make up for that dark side by being just, just doing everything for people and pleasing people. That baggage side. Some of us go the other extreme and just try and give up being beautiful and we throw it all away and let it all go. Right? Those are the two extremes with so many variations and combinations in between. And what I observed as I studied social sciences and continue to dabble in them a little bit, there are, there are a lot of very insightful observations that I love and grasp onto. But they are all wrestling with this dilemma with incomplete and not fully satisfying answers. David, the great king, God's chosen king for his people, he wrestled with this dilemma in himself. Psalm 8, that great, that, that great psalm of praise to God because as he looks at the beauty and dignity of who we are, what is man you are mindful of, but you have made him a little lower than the angels, crowned him with glory and honor. He sees that, he feels that, he knows that. On the other hand, Psalm 51, he gets busted. And he has to look in the mirror and see the dark side. And he says, surely I was born in sin. So why are we spending a whole teaching painting this picture and going around in circles on it? Well, it's a key piece of reality that we have to wake up to or else we're going to be stumbling and destroying ourselves and allowing ourselves to be destroyed. But it's also essential in grasping the beauty of the key text for our teaching this month. What is the vision of the story we are called to see? You are made complete in Him. 
What that tells us is that any beauty we have is not our own. It is a reflection. And living in that beauty, growing into that beauty, living that beauty out depends on a connection. You are complete in Him. It also says on the other side, my brokenness does not have to define me if I allow God to use it to refine me. That's what he wants to do. You are complete because of and in Jesus. It deals with both sides. In order to grab hold of the completeness God wants for me, I, I, just, I, I need to recognize the depth and the gravity of my incompleteness. It is probably not what I'm thinking it is. Or at least it's more than I think it is. You see, we tend to think at surface level. Something I can't experience in my environment that I'm in. A promotion that I deserve. Some attention I need. Some validation I crave. And when we get it, what happens is we say, well, it's, it's not enough. It wasn't genuine. It was only halfway, right? We, we have tried to resolve it way back to the time of Plato by saying that we need, we need education. The, the philosopher king thing, right? We have, we have followed Marx and we've talked about people needing to, needing to be freed from repressive standards and oppressive structures. Freud following Marx. You know what? The, there's always some, some kernel of truth in, in, in those things, but, but God's solution is completeness in Jesus, and it's, it's way more comprehensive than any of those. It, it addresses the root problem in all of us. And friends, the implication of this story is that we will never fully resolve the issues that we have with, with some very core things, self-worth, self-identity, our needs as we perceive them. We won't resolve those until we explore how they might have their roots in, in this tension. Beauty or beast. And every time we feel in our hearts, I am not what I was created to be, God is there saying, you're right, you're right, but do you really grasp what you were created to be? What you are going for to, to, to fill that fullness, that, that fulfillment of who you are is too low. Not only will it not satisfy, there's a good chance it will cause you more grief and hurt, more movement towards emptiness and darkness and chaos than what you know. Because grasping for more usually becomes less. So let's start moving towards landing this thing. And let's think of some of the ways that that we wrestle with this tension, beautiful or broken, dignified or dirt. It seems to me, as I was, I've been wrestling through this the last, last several weeks, it seems to me that there's sort of three levels of thinking and, and behaving. Number one, for some of us, it's either I'm beautiful or I'm broken. We're, we're very binary about it. We just, and, and so we go full on to one side. We, we either deny the underbelly, underbelly and prove it doesn't exist and, and just put on a mask, which is, well denial, or we give up on ever living up to some standard we can't achieve and we just let it go, which is always downhill. When you let something go, it goes downhill, right? 
So some of us, we, we come and we look at the story and we say, yeah, it's true. And, and so we try to live in the tension. We accept the tension and we live in the tension. And, and when we do that, it creates tension, which leads to defeat. And that is what a lot of people who claim to live in God's story do. They get it. They understand it. But they don't fully grasp that this is not just about creation and fall. The promise, you are complete. You are complete. Not will be complete. You are complete in Jesus. Can you not see it? Will you not accept that? There is a better way than just beautiful are broken and beautiful and broken. And there's a hint of that better way even in the story of the fall. God, first, when he comes onto this scene of fallenness, he first deals with the one who brought it on, the evil one. And here's what he says. I will put enmity between you and and, and the woman, between your offspring and hers. Oh, you're going to bruise his heel. You're going to knock him down, but you won't take him out. And in that bruising, he will crush your head. Yes, I gave them the ability to choose, and they have to live with the consequences of their choices. But when you touch my image, you touch me. And you will not get away with it. This is a picture, a promise right at the fall that God is not finished with this creation He will still someday make a new kind of order out of the chaos that we created. A new kind of light out of the darkness that we walked into. A new kind of fullness even in the emptiness that we brought on ourselves. This is a picture of Jesus. Is this not the most satisfying picture of who I am, what my problem is, and what God can do? So let's look at where we've been. In the beginning, God, where did I come from and why am I here? It's not really my story at all. It's His. Number two, who am I and why do I not feel like I am who I was created to be? You know, just putting these two pieces of the puzzle together, we're already able to discern a whole lot of pieces that don't fit into the puzzle. Pieces that come from other stories. Let me just tell you one little example I came across in the last week or so. Uh, what's the line that we are taught to drill into our minds these days? You are enough, right? You've looked into the mirror and you've preached that to yourself, right? But does that come from our story? Think about it. At best, that only takes into account that one dimension of the dignity we were created to have. And even then, does it take into account that even before We lost that dignity. It was only in and under God that we experienced that enoughness. I I love the question Carolyn Ahrens asks in her column recently in the Faith Today magazine. Was it not the attempt to be and have enough apart from God that caused our not enoughness? No. Our story says you are enough complete in Him. Can you see what happens when we don't really remember the story? We begin to incorporate different stories that, well, they might help us fake it for a while, but they don't really deliver on our enoughness. And so what? You know what? Next year, there's going to be a different line, a different mantra, because this one didn't quite deliver. Really quickly, looking ahead. 
The third part of this story is how I live in light of my destiny and my dilemmas and live with the God who is enough. The rest of the story fleshes out with all kinds of, of, of characters and stories how we can live in light of that. And so the next two weeks, we're just going to talk about two of the life processes of how to live in this story that, that we get through the rest of the story. And then finally, our story tells us where we're going and how it's all going to end. Four broad themes in the story of reality. Big picture sections of the puzzle. God, me, life, home. Some of you are saying, well, what about Jesus? In this story, he is part of every single part. He becomes more obvious as time goes on. He was there at the beginning. It's John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is with God and the Word was God. Without him, nothing that was made that has been made. He showed up as a promise in the garden scene as humanity made a decision by which darkness once again threatened light. Confusion disturbed the order and emptiness. And he shows up just like he did with Jacob at various parts in the Old Testament scene. There's, there's Jesus showing up as a man. And he showed up fully when he came in his incarnation, the new image of God coming into history, into this world of darkness, chaos, and emptiness, another man was given. God's Trojan horse strategy and a bloody cross and an empty tomb forever changed the struggle between good and evil in my heart. And it is in Jesus that all of history will be wrapped up. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So what does that tell me about living in the tension if we know the story. Well, Jesus said, follow me, which means follow the path that I'm going to show you. I'm going to die as a substitute for you to make you complete, to reverse the curse, but I'm also dying for you to set an example of how to resolve that tension now. The only way to live in light of this tension is to allow myself to be beautifully broken. Remember the psalm of David in which he comes to terms with his brokenness? At the end of that psalm, he recognizes God's solution. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will never despise. A broken spirit, acknowledging not just that sin is what I do occasionally when I'm off my game. Sin is who I am. Peter talks about the same thing when he says, humble yourself. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand and he will lift you up. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and burdened, who are living in that tension. It's become such a tension. It's taken us out and you will find rest for your souls. Why? Here's what I want us to leave knowing. Jesus only built with broken pieces. That's the way it is. That's the way it has to be. That's the way it ultimately will be for every, forever. Beautifully broken in order to become complete in Him. Are you living it?
Are you living in it? Are you allowing yourself to manage the tension by simply in your day, every day, just becoming beautifully broken? 